Welcome to Secrets True Crime, the Eric Cates and Gypsy Story. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Eric Cates, his beloved dog Gypsy, in the town of Empire, Alabama. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It's not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode 12 of a serial podcast, and they are designed to be listened to in order. Uh, Yesterday, March the 21st, was the uh, five-year anniversary of uh, having found Eric and Gypsy at Empire School, burned in the truck. You know, looking back over four and a half years, just really disgusted, absolute, at times in shock, that no more has been done on Eric and Gypsy's case. I feel like with the tips and the information that the family and I received, that things should have been done that wasn't done. And I know that the people listening to the podcast, a lot of them think that too. And it's been very hard and frustrating to have to fight all the obstacles that not only the Sheriff's Department, previous and current, the DA's office, the fire marshal, the coroner, have put in our way to just get basic answers to the questions that we had concerning Eric and Gypsy's horrific murders. I mean, we've just recently now had the validation that it wasn't suicide or accidental. We have a sheriff that is telling us that it is a homicide. So with all that, I have to put four and a half years behind us because I think the past six months, so much has come to light and we have made substantial progress with the help of the podcast with Amber, with Michael, with Echo Foxtrot. So much has been accomplished in just a few months that only substantiates that If it had been worked when it should have, when it first occurred, we wouldn't be having these murderers in the communities and that have possibly committed other crimes. And it's just sad that the people that we have in place that are supposed to protect us and help us have been our major enemy aside from the people who committed these crimes. It's sad. I don't think that this case is special. And what I mean by that is that I don't think that Eric and Gypsy is the only death, murder, been pushed aside, swept under the rug. I don't think that we are the only family in Walker County that has been treated in such a horrible way 
by the powers that be in Walker County. And it's sad to know that the numbers are staggering that have had to put up with the continuous fight of elected officials that swore and made promises to better Walker County. But in fact, they are just enabling and protecting the criminal. As Toby said, this past Saturday, March 21st, was the five-year anniversary of Eric and Gypsy's murder. The entire week was full of painful memories for Toby. Monday, March 16th, was five years since she had last seen Eric. Friday, March 20th, was Eric's last day alive. We asked Toby what she did on that Friday in 2015. Uh, the day before I had worked, Eric was coming to the house on Saturday to uh, help put up a gate. And um, I was just working around that afternoon when I got in from work, getting things ready for him to come the next day. It was a normal day, the last one I've ever had. It appeared to be a normal day for Eric, too. Eric was in and out of the blue store. He was washing his truck and dressing up for the barbecue he'd been anticipating going to all week. Five years later, she suspects that this barbecue was likely nothing more than a ruse to lure Eric to his murder. We believe Eric was last seen at the blue store that night around 8.30 p.m., chatting with one and possibly two people who say they have no memory of it. And then Eric drove off out of that parking lot one last time and headed down Little Vine Road. Saturday, March 21st, was the day Eric and Gypsy's remains were found in Eric's burned truck. Make no mistake about this. Eric and Gypsy were brutalized that night. While we don't know about Gypsy, we know that Eric was likely very badly wounded. No one called for help. No one tried to help him at all. And we believe there were lots of people present who could have. Some of these people are likely the very people Eric called friends. People he'd given gifts, brought food to, spent his hard-earned money on, and even those he had stuck his neck out to protect. In his time of need, every single one of them betrayed him. Then they took Eric Gypsy and his truck behind the Empire School, and they set fire to that truck with Eric and Gypsy in it while Eric was still breathing. These people who participated in this murder, who were witnesses to this murder, are listening to this podcast. I believe some of them have even joined our Patreon in an attempt to figure out exactly how much we know. We know a lot, and we aren't the only ones. The tide has turned. If you are one of those who know what happened to Eric, now is the time to tell. Doing so could be the difference for some of you in being a witness 
and a participant. Maybe you weren't there, but you saw someone with a burn on their arm or hand after Eric's murder. If you did, you have important information. Maybe you saw a man with a dog bite on his leg. Maybe you even helped doctor that dog bite. Maybe you were asked for a first aid kit or medication that night. If so, you have important information. Please let us hear from you. We will direct you to a law enforcement agency outside of Walker County where you can finally tell what you know without fear of your statements being shared with the whole county. We will direct you to the right investigator with no questions asked. Anyone who participated in a murder as brutal as this is capable of anything, and they need to be locked up before they hurt someone else again. In February 2020, Toby and I were invited to attend an event in which Tim Miller, the founder of Texas EquiSearch, would be speaking and we made the drive to Fayette County, Alabama for it. Many of you will be familiar with Tim Miller and Texas EquiSearch, but I want to share a little background information for those who might not be. On September 24, 1984, Mr. Miller's 16-year-old daughter, Laura Miller, was abducted and murdered. Her disappearance was not taken seriously by the League City, Texas Police Department, they dismissed Mr. Miller's concerns and never even made a missing persons report. They acted as if she was a runaway or said maybe she had committed suicide. Mr. Miller learned that another woman, Heidi Fye's remains, had been found in a nearby oil field and that Heidi Fye had last been seen using the same payphone his daughter had been using at the time she disappeared. He brought that information to the League City Police Department, and he was dismissed yet again. They told him that Heidi Fye was a drug addict, and her death was not related to his daughter. They lied to him and told him that the property where Heidi was found was private property. They told him it had a fence around it and that he could not go there. He believed law enforcement and he followed their instructions to not go there. But their lies were exposed when many months later, remains of two other women were found on the same property. The property was not fenced. Laura's skeletal remains were eventually found on that property too. The remains of Laura, Heidi, and at least 28 other women and girls were found in the oil fields between Galveston and Houston off the I-45 corridor. Most of these murders remain unsolved and are best known as the Killing Field Murders. The mishandling and re-victimization of Laura and her loved ones by local law enforcement continued, and Tim Miller did things on his own to investigate his daughter's murder much like Toby has with Eric's murder. In 2000, Tim Miller founded Texas EquiSearch, a nonprofit that assists law enforcement and families of missing people in search and recovery efforts. 
he told us he started Texas EquiSearch as a prayer and a promise that he'd never leave a family with a missing loved one alone. At the time of that speech, in February 2020, Texas EquiSearch had conducted almost 2,100 searches for missing people across 38 states and 10 countries and had recovered the remains of 268 deceased victims. If you've never heard Tim Miller's full story about his daughter, Laura, I encourage you to Google him. He is a good man who has channeled his heartbreak into helping others in their time of despair and desperation. While he believed he'd buried his daughter decades ago, he later discovered the police department sold some of her bones for research without his permission and knowledge. He was able to retrieve some of her remains, and he exhumed his daughter. He had a second funeral for Laura with the newly recovered remains. Towards the end of 2019, Tim Miller was contacted by the FBI. A medical examiner was cleaning out their office, and they found remains that they didn't know who they belonged to. They sent them off for testing and discovered that they belonged to Laura Miller. You can listen to his full speech that day on our Facebook page, as I did Facebook Live during it. But I wanted to share a couple things he said. These comments were made as he described his conversation with law enforcement when they informed him they'd discovered more of his daughter's remains in the medical examiner's office. Mr. Miller said, In a perfect world, a child is supposed to bury their parents. Do you think it's right that I have to bury my daughter three times for the mistakes you people made? And we wonder why this murder can't be solved. So I'm in the process again of exhuming my daughter's body 35 years later. The system is broken. It's broken. My daughter matters. Your daughter matters. Your child matters. He told us Nancy Grace asked him what was the biggest high-profile case he'd ever worked. He responded and said, every one of them. He said, just because this child makes national news and this child out here may have a drug problem, may have a terribly dysfunctional family, I'm pretty sure God loves them all exactly the same. So it's not up to me who we search for and who we don't. He went on to say, So everything I told you people is true. The problem is bigger today than it was 20 years ago. Our children are being forgotten. They only make up 25% of our population, but they make up 100% of our future. Hearing Mr. Miller tell his story in person would be an honor any day. But the day we met Mr. Miller wasn't just any day. You see... As we listened to Mr. Miller that day, investigator Mike Cole and former investigator Chuck Tidwell were also in the audience. Chuck Tidwell's presence there was a bit of a surprise. As we attended that meeting, it wasn't overly publicized. 
And so when I saw Chuck Tidwell there, when he came up and to say hello, I asked someone that was familiar with the guest list, was he invited? And I was told no, that he was not on the guest list. So I found it a little surprising that uh, Chuck Tidwell and Mike Cole would walk in together, and I questioned it. Mike Cole was thoughtful enough to bring former investigator Chuck Tidwell right over to meet us. We did get to chat with Chuck for a few minutes before the event began, and then we were able to speak with him at great length afterwards. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. While true crime is my passion, sometimes I need to decompress from the stress of my day. That's how I found my favorite game. Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike other puzzle games out there. While Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, it's a casual game anyone can play, but it's made for adults. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. I've been playing it for five years now. I'm on level 1087 and have collected 30 of the cutest characters you've ever seen that I strategically use to help solve the puzzles. And the best part? You don't need internet to play. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, back to the episode. As Tim Miller spoke, it was obvious that everything he's been through with his daughter's abduction and murder, that it's all taken a great toll on him and that it still does. His speech was emotional and heartfelt. I remember turning to Toby at the end of his speech to say that there have never been two men who needed to hear that more than Investigator Cole and former Investigator Tidwell. I was thrilled they were able to hear and see the grief and pain felt by a victim's family, especially when they are enduring a mishandled police investigation. Mr. Miller is absolutely right in what he said. Every single one of these missing and murdered people matter. He stated it wasn't up to him who he searches for and who he doesn't. It shouldn't be up to law enforcement which of these cases they work and which they don't. Which of these cases make it on the grand jury docket and which mysteriously never make it on the docket year after year. And it certainly isn't up to law enforcement and other departments in the criminal justice system to bury the facts and evidence such as they have in Eric's case. In the last episode, we revealed that thanks to Toby's unwavering persistence, Investigator Cole discovered that the six numbered pages he had with some of those pages missing was not a complete autopsy for Eric. At Toby's insistence, Investigator Cole and District Attorney Bill Adair's office requested that the Alabama Department of Forensics resend a full copy of the autopsy. And it is in fact 31 pages that establishes the manner of death as homicide. 
How did this happen? I briefly touched on this in the prior episode, but this is an important question that deserves much more attention. We've spent the last two weeks asking questions to other knowledgeable law enforcement officers, doctors, and other professionals, asking how the process works for the autopsy. And again, how can this happen? Based on what I've been told from various people with knowledge of the autopsy process, once the final report is ready, the Alabama Department of Forensic Science mails copies of the report to various agencies involved. Each agency receives their very own copy from DFS. If things happened like they are supposed to, DFS would have mailed a copy of the autopsy to District Attorney Bill Adair's office, another copy to Coroner Joey Vick's office, another copy to the Walker County Sheriff's office, and another copy to Philip Freeman at the Alabama Fire Marshal's office. I haven't found anyone who can think of more than two possibilities how five years later, all of these agencies didn't have the full autopsy or even know the manner of death determination in the autopsy. The first option is that the Alabama Department of Forensic Science made an error and somehow sent out an incomplete copy of the autopsy to four different government agencies. I would guess that this is easily verifiable if someone with authority wanted to check. While I can't rule this option out, I don't believe that it's the most likely scenario. Another option is that there were people inside those agencies that worked in coordination to bury parts of this autopsy. You have to understand that the sheriff's department, the DA, the coroner, and the fire marshal all have the same autopsy. But not at one time, to my knowledge, did any of these departments stop and say, wait a minute, what lung was the soot in? And what are these other discrepancies that are not explained? And if they have seen an autopsy before, which I'm sure they have, I wouldn't bet on it, but I'm sure in their professions they have seen numerous autopsies. And none of these people in these positions question this is shocking. How many other people have not been able to see an autopsy? How many other people have been forced fed someone else's determination or explanation of a death. I just, I cannot understand why someone in this chain did not say, hey, something's wrong. Where's this part of an autopsy? Why didn't somebody notice that an evidence sheet was the first sheet in an autopsy report? Why didn't someone else notice that the pages were not sequential? This is not something you would take to court. Who handles the autopsies in a DA's office? Why weren't the workers in there that are helping with this case not notice that something was not right with this autopsy? Why did it take a mother trying to get questions answered about her son's murder, begging for a complete autopsy 
or more questions. What I looked at threw up more questions than what I had in the beginning. So why hasn't someone who this is their job noticed these discrepancies and want to fix it? But yet it took almost five years to get a completed autopsy report that sadly, in one instant, went from six pages to 31 pages because a mother had to beg and plead and not give up to get it. I can see why people just quit. I can see why people don't have an autopsy in Walker County because there's so many doors that you have to break through to finally get them to listen to you. The harassment, and it was harassment. The condescending attitude that a great and wonderful investigator with numerous years of experience that Walker County is so lucky to be able to get in a part-time position to work on these cold cases is an absolute joke. There have been comments made by some in Walker County recently about things in the podcast being hearsay. We are taking great care with how we present things here, and there's a reason for that. And let me tell you right here in this episode, our informants will never be given up. And we have very good informants that have given us leads that continually prove to be truthful or lead us to the next step we need to prove something else. We are very fortunate to have these people, even though they know how dangerous it is. If we are discussing a rumor or speculation, we call it rumor or speculation. We provide substantiation to things we present as facts to you, the public, whenever possible. However, we sometimes present other information and we aren't able to share the background of how we obtained the information or who provided it to us. Toby said it best. We are going to protect our informants at all costs. Toby has been doing it for five years now, and we are doing the same. Which brings me to an important piece of information regarding Eric's autopsy. It's the prime example of a piece of information we can't tell or share who it came from and how we know it, but we have every reason to believe it's truthful. We have it on very good authority that after Eric's autopsy was first received years ago, there was a meeting with the district attorney and the investigators on Eric's case. In this meeting, they had a conference call with the medical examiner at the Alabama Department of Forensics in Huntsville to have the doctor go over the autopsy with them. Doesn't it seem probable that if these agencies had only been provided a small portion of the final autopsy report, that it would have become very obvious during this conference call with the doctor? Now, that last statement is obviously speculation, but here's a question for you all to consider. Why aren't they looking into how this happened? Why aren't the four government agencies that only had a portion of an autopsy in a murder investigation for five years investigating how this happened and what went wrong? 
why aren't they double checking other cases to make sure that they don't have incomplete information on them too? Why aren't they conducting a full-blown investigation into this atrocity to ensure that it never ever happens again? Everyone knows you can't prevent something from happening again if you don't take the time to determine how it happened the first time. Of course, it's possible they don't need to investigate it because the very ones who should be investigating it already know the answers. But instead of admitting to an issue, Sheriff Nick Smith continues to play the victim of a poor sheriff who's being publicly criticized for no reason. On the fifth anniversary of her son's murder, Toby received a letter in the mail from Sheriff Smith. The letter is typed on the Walker County Sheriff's Office letterhead. It doesn't have a date, and it contains numerous typos and inaccuracies. I received a letter from him on March the 21st with the paperwork uh, showing me what all had been turned over to the outside aid agency. And uh, Sheriff Smith enclosed a letter uh, informing me that Eric's case had been officially turned over to the outside agency. And there were a few things in this letter that caused me to um, have concerns and question some of the things that were said. In this letter, the sheriff says that all case files, evidence, interviews, and statements have been turned over to the investigator. And as I look back through the list of uh, items that was turned over, there are several things that is not on this list that I felt like should be. Back in November, when I was notified again that things were being removed from Eric's evidence, and I questioned the sheriff about it, he assured me that all of the evidence was under lock and key, that he did not even have a key to get in it, and that if anything was missing, it was done so by the prior administration. In the letter, he also says um, that the truck will remain where it is, but that the outside agency has full access to it whenever it is needed. Sheriff Smith puts his regrets in this letter that the steps that his department and he took to work my son's case wasn't satisfactory to me. Well, number one, the few steps that I know the department took was absolutely ridiculous. Every time I ask Sheriff Smith, if he had had a chance to look at Eric's case file, he would tell me no, that there was a lot of information in there, that it was a mess from the prior administration. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And in the meeting, like I said, with Sheriff Smith present, Mike Cole admitted to me that he had talked to one of the suspects that I had asked him to. He informed me that he had talked to him over the phone and ask him about things that happened in his interview in 2015. And Mike Cole assured me that his story was the same and that the guy in question got blamed for a lot of things that happened in Empire and that uh, 
It just wasn't right. It wasn't fair to keep accusing these same people of everything bad that happened in empire. Now, there were a few things that upset me with those statements. Number one, you've already told me that you haven't looked at Eric's case file. You haven't looked at any of the prior statements, but yet you want to tell me that over the phone, while you're talking to someone, they say their story hasn't changed. How do you know? And when is it acceptable? And let me tell you here, the coronavirus was not an effect when this took place. So it wasn't trying to distance himself from social gatherings. So my question is, when do you start or when did they start interviewing prime suspects over the phone? The other thing is when I offered to go with him to a certain place that I knew they hung out. And when I say they, I'm talking about the two suspects that I had wanted to be re-interviewed. He was kind of laughed at me. The sheriff made a statement, and so did Mike Cole, that he couldn't go there. It was too dangerous. I offered to go as backup for him. He didn't take me up on the offer or the invitation. Now, my problem with that is you have a sheriff who hears his cold case investigator saying that he picked up the phone and gave one of the main suspects in a murder case a phone interview. The next thing he hears from a cold case investigator is that he's tired of these two individuals being blamed on everything bad that happens in Empire. He did not say anything to this cold case investigator about those statements. And I was appalled, to say the least. These are just several of the steps that I think the sheriff is referring to. And I, too, regret that his steps were not sufficient enough to help in my son's, in Gypsy's case. It was pathetic. It was absolutely disgraceful, unprofessional, and the lack of respect for my son, Gypsy, and my family is inexcusable. If I had been in there demanding special treatment, if I had been uncooperative, Secrets True Crime, Echo 7, Foxtrot, and myself, we have all been over backwards trying to help Sheriff Smith and his department in this case. I can't believe that this administration, this cold case investigator, would not accept all of the information that we have gathered over the years and you and Mike the, the past few months that you've been working on this case. The detail in your interviews, your tips, and they refused this knowledge. They refused this help. I mean, this thinking ship that I'm on just keep sinking, and they're not even going to throw us a lifeline. In fact, at times, I feel like this cold case investigator was condescending. It was almost, he was like laughing at the information that we were trying to give him, even though he didn't know what was in this information. 
but he made it perfectly clear that he did not want any information that we had. And at one point, the sheriff even said, Sheriff Smith, Toby, you probably know more about your son's case than we do. Now, this is coming from someone who says he has not looked at the case file. And this is coming from a cold case investigator who says he has not looked at the case file. He's looked at bits and pieces of it. So, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I do know more about this case than you do. And what is so bad is that a private investigator and a podcast investigator knows more about my son's case than the elected officials and the law enforcement agency that is supposed to be working it. Join us next time as we continue to investigate and push for justice for Eric and Gypsy. If you have any information that could help in solving the murders of Eric and Gypsy or the mysterious death of Randy Hicks, please email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check out our Patreon. We have filled it with great information about Susan and Evan and Eric and Gypsy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Your support as a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast helps us cover the expenses associated with producing a high-quality podcast, traveling to conduct field work and interviews, and obtaining the tools and equipment needed to conduct a thorough investigation. In short, your support as a patron allows us to do more for these families. Become a patron of Secrets True Crime Podcast today and let's solve these cases together. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also be posting the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. I'm active on social media and often share photos of Eric and Gypsy. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Secrets Crime. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com. <laughs>